It's the journey we're on and all of the little things that happen on the way to our goals that really make the difference. We're going to continue with the pursuit. Welcome to episode number five of Pursuing the Process. John Barnes, good to catch up with you again, my man. We are back, Todd. How you doing? We are back. I have some breaking news to share as we get into episode <laughs> five. I hope everybody just is on the edge of their chair right now. Get out of here. <laughs> thinking about how earth-shattering this news is going to be. So in preparation for this interview that we'll talk about in a second, I actually learned that my co-host's dad has the same name as me. I am not calling you dad, father, <laughs> daddy. There will be no variation of that. But I will say it is funny because I think you and my dad are the only two Todds I know. Yeah, and, and I, will, I will accentuate that by saying I believe I'm the youngest Todd in the history of Todds. Um, so I, I think my name uh, became extinct around the time that I received it from my parents <laughs> Uh, but, you know, hats off to your dad. I knew he was a smart man. And it also explains the love and admiration that I felt from you just intrinsically, even from the day we met. <laughs> yeah, you're getting real child vibes. Like I was looking to you as that, as that father figure. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, Whatever man. story you want to tell yourself, man. <laughs> I'm not giving you an allowance. That's all I have to say. Come on, but I mowed the grass. I'm not <laughs> shoveling, man. I'm not going to shovel. Do it yourself. I love it. We're going to talk about snow in a minute here, so we'll we'll get there. Uh, before we before we do though, uh, once in a while we're going to go back and give you updates on uh, previous guests that we uh, have been a part of the pod. And today we have a very exciting announcement to make, in addition to the earth-shattering one that I just made. Uh, and that is that the guest in episode two, Sam Hauser of the Boston Celtics, just scored his first NBA points tonight in a big win over the hometown Milwaukee Bucks. Woo woo! Let's go, Sam. Yeah, way to go, Sam. Big Smooth with his first three-pointer of his NBA career. And uh, also recorded a rebound tonight. So awesome, awesome to see that. Not so awesome to see that they beat the Bucks, But Sam and the Celtics are coming to Milwaukee on Christmas Day. Sam, I know you're listening, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you up for some tickets. And uh, I would expect that you could, you know, make them real, real nice seats for me. Dirty, dirty, man. You're going to call it out publicly like that? Just... Going just... for the ticket card. Oh. <laughs> no, first of oh. many for Sam. It's exciting to see him awesome. starting off his career in that kind of way. It but absolutely other is. winter yep. sports, I am hyped up to be out here because it is snowfall season, which means snowboard season. Oh, and it's funny enough, actually, my first ever snowboard, let's see if Keith remembers this, but our guest today was the one who <laughs> gave me my first snowboard ever, and it was a banged up hand-me-down. We had some fun with it. So this is actually the first time I'll be getting out here, coming up, getting out to Tahoe, and we'll be out for the first time since a pretty bad injury. I wrapped myself around a tree in Telluride, Super Bowl Sunday of 2021. So I remember that. Been... I remember it well. I remember getting the pictures from the hospital up there. Yep. And uh, you were more concerned, I think, about your company manufacturing the x-ray equipment than you were about your body itself, which, tell, <laughs> which, which tells me what kind of uh, loyal employee you are. But I would, uh, I, I would say, man, I was very worried about you, and I'm glad that you, uh, you made your way through. And, you know, short of some 
weird comments you make here and there. I think you're back to, to normal. <laughs> I mean, whatever normal is for me. I mean, yeah, I know you were scared about your son out. in the hospital when that had happened. So thank you for thank you for appreciating that, <laughs> giving me the love. love Absolutely, man. Absolutely. It will be interesting though, because it's it's a weird mental barrier. So I actually broke a few ribs, fractured my spine. It was a liver contusion, bruised lung. It, it was pretty bad. So it's oh, really interesting. It. Yeah, you you did it about as well as anybody could. Oh yeah, and uh, that was a gnarly gnarly fall that you had. Oh, it was. And we joke about it, but in all seriousness, I mean, very fortunate to be healthy back in the recovery train here. So we talk about mental hurdles and it's weird, those mindset tricks that it plays on you and all of a sudden you come off of something like that. So yeah, so the slopes will be interesting. It will be, man. So what's, the, what's the plan? Do you have a, a an initial run already uh, established in your mind? What are you going to do? I think you just got to throw it down steep right away. I think you go over to yeah. maybe a blue, maybe not quite the black diamond off the bat. <laughs> I can get down one before I start tumbling again so get a little confidence get the feet underneath me but it's funny but i'm dead serious when i say this i've been doing visualization exercises in bed some night of imagining myself going down the mountain because it really is this weird mental hurdle to just jump over so i am beyond excited to have that tingle to get out so first fall will come of course and just excited to be back out there yeah i mean snow's been at a premium man across the country i mean i'm hoping you get enough snow to get up there pretty soon i you were saying though that tahoe got hit pretty hard well, they've actually delayed opening day about two weeks now. It's supposed to get out in November, but got delayed a couple of times. But now they are absolutely getting pounded. So California is getting some much needed precipitation, which here is rain in San Francisco, but a lot of snow hitting Tahoe. So a lot of fresh pow pow. Oh, dude, that pow pow thing again, man. If anybody, <laughs> if you could see John right now, he's wearing a freaking beanie. The guy looks like he lives <laughs> in his parents' basement. I mean, he's really getting after this whole snowboarding vibe that he's got going on. Gotta um, play the card. But I did, I did hear, the funny you say that, because a friend of mine in Denver mentioned that they had gone 232 consecutive days without measurable snowfall. Ooh. And that is nuts for the city of Denver. That's just, uh, I guess, goes to show that it's been a rough snowfall year. So hopefully you guys get up there soon, man. Absolutely. And I can always count on you for just a random stat. Like, who, who else I know, knows that? Man. It's so weird. It's, uh, you know, I've got a little Cliff Clavin in me. I know most people listening probably don't know who the hell that is. But if you ever watch nope. show Cheers... If you ever watch the show Cheers, you can go back and I think it's on Netflix. Fun I'll ask my show. dad. My, my, yeah, my ask your dad. Is. <laughs> <laughs> so, All right. right, but let's get into our guest today. We have Keith Schwen, a good friend of mine. And Keith has battled through a lot in his life from a tough upbringing and a family stricken through poverty. He actually had some terrible tragedies happen at quite a young age where he lost immediate family members, people he considered family members. So if you're out there, I know we all go through tough times mentally. Shit gets thrown our way in life that we can't control, but Keith's story is an inspiration to all of us. And the way that he battles through that and develops his mindset, I mean, when I think about Keith, I don't think about the tough things. You would never know that. I think about generous, fun, successful. He's built an amazing life for himself and the people around him. He is now a husband and a father of two beautiful kids, Trent and Avery. Keith and I had a lot of good times together, too. I mean, we've traveled through New Zealand together. He was recently at my brother's wedding. And we actually have a fun little Packer game coming up here on Christmas, too. So a lot of good stuff coming up. But he has, has this way of capitalizing opportunities. And despite the tough things that go on through life, he frames his mindset in a way of he's here for a reason. He's going to make the most of that. So, Keith, we are so honored to have you on with us here today. Welcome to the podcast, man. Hey, man. Thanks. I, kind words. I actually forgot about that snowboard story until you just said that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what was great about John when that happened is he wrote me this, like, super kind handwritten note 
and was like, Hey, I really appreciate you giving me these snowboards. Um, but the story behind those snowboards is that I was just bringing them to the dump probably the next day anyway. So he, <laughs> he, he, he helped me out by taking them off my hands. <laughs> oh, those things are tanks. I appreciate the John, kind words, John's though, buddy. Shredding on these shitty snowboards. I love it. <laughs> Got to start somewhere, man. I, I uh-huh. think even when I gave it to him, I was like, you might need to wax these or at least uh, maybe get some different bindings because I don't know if you'll survive, but. Haven't you, you've used them now, like on mountains, haven't you? <laughs> on mountains, he asks, as if I'm riding them down the street. Yes, I have used them on mountains. I've tumbled down many mountains with that snowboard. I've since I think upgraded, I, but it took me a few years. I, I think I'm more or less saying that, like, it's not like Rib Mountain, a hill in, you know, Wisconsin. Yeah. Like, you actually went on, like, an Alp with that beaten up snowboard. <laughs> Well, uh, Keith, thanks for being on. We really do appreciate it. And uh, excited to have you as part of the, the pod here today. You know, I thought maybe we could, uh, John stepped through a little bit of your story. And I think we wanted to have you on to be able to tell that today. And that's really the goal of this podcast and the name that, in, that, that it is of pursuing the process. And you've absolutely embodied the, uh, the, the need to, to pursue a process, even in the face of significant adversity. So I'd love to take it from the top and talk a little bit about your story in sort of chronological order, if we could. Uh, and I would just love to start with kind of your childhood, where you grew up, um, you know, what that was like with your two brothers and your, your mom and dad, and just take us through a little bit yeah. of, of the backdrop there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll skip the parts where uh, the magic happened between my mom and dad, <laughs> but I'll jump to uh, how yes, the please. other things uh uh, came about uh, within my life. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, again, I had uh, two good parents, um, you know, as good as they could be, I guess, if uh, you want to say that. Um, and I uh, was blessed to get uh, two younger brothers along the way. Um, at some point, they decided to make our family grow. You know, life wasn't uh, the greatest growing up uh, as a child just because of the situation we were in and the poverty cycle. Once my parents got divorced, I, I truly found out what it meant to be in a poverty uh, situation with now a single mom at the age of 25 with three kids trying to raise them all at one time. One of the first times that, you know, that I could remember with my mom as a single mom, and I don't know if you guys have ever encountered this before, but food stamps back in the day came in like little paper, like they almost looked like money booklets. And different colors was the higher value. So like a green was like a $20 value of food stamp. And a five was like pink. It was like pretty much monopoly money is what Mm -hmm. would come in the mail. And they came in an envelope and they would, you know, be sent to your house. And, um, you know, the parent used that stamp to buy the food or whatever they needed. So my mom being a single mom and struggling at the time, and I hope the feds aren't listening to this podcast, but. What she learned is that she could go to a certain gas station, give us kids a food stamp, maybe a $20 or a $5 one, but she would advise us to just buy a quarter Little Debbie snack because then they had to break the food stamp and you got real American dollar change. Yep. That's right. So, um, and again, mom, sorry for telling your secrets out here on this (laughs) podcast, but, um, well, we do have so, a lot of feds you know, listening what, in, just so you know. The feds love this right. podcast, dude. 
Yeah, I mean, if they're not listening uh, now, they're going to be after this yeah, one probably. So. They will be. You're, you're gonna get um, get the call for sure. Yeah. Um, so she would, you know, advise us to do that, right? And, you know, basically, uh, from there, she used that money for gas money to get back and forth from work, or, you know, picking us up from school, or whatever it might be. Well, when you touch on real poverty, when all of a sudden your parents split, mom is single. It's my understanding that you and your brothers went into some of a woman's shelter during that time. And I think about just relationships are built on so many shared experiences. So what was that like for you and your brothers to go through that together? Yeah, I mean, during that time period, you basically shared a eight by eight room with another family. So another mom and how many of her kids that they had. And, uh, you know, basically it was my mom on the futon and us three boys on the top of the bed sleeping and that was our place to stay probably for about, I don't know, give or take probably six months or so. I mean, I know we finished out the school year at the school that we were going to. And I think that was about six months that we had to go there um, until my mom figured out or tried to, you know, work out a way for us to get an apartment. So I don't know if she was having us cash food stamps for however long. So she saved up that money to get a down payment on an apartment or not. But um, yeah, to be honest with you, that that time period was some some very bad memories and then also some good memories i mean I, one fond memory that sticks in my head is i remember watching uh michael jordan win a nba championship while we were in that woman's shelter and it was the utah jazz uh shop oh yeah where yeah. he didn't push off on so, byron russell right that's right well we'll yeah. say that he won't push off on him right <laughs> <laughs> So what was your relationship like with your two younger brothers? I mean, how, how did that, those shared experiences to John's point, shape your relationship with them? And what was your childhood like with your two brothers? Yeah. I mean, we were, we were close before the divorce. Um, you know, I, I always like to talk about John and his brothers cause I see, you know, their relationship a lot with like how I was with my brothers and um, you know, I think, living in those time periods where we were sharing a bed, like all three of us sharing one bed, I think got us closer. And, um, you know, it, like I said, it was, it wasn't bad times with them. It was more, uh, you know, again, I think a growing time period between us three. Now my youngest brother, you know, he was only gosh, three or four at the time. I think, three or four when we went there. <clears throat> but um, my, my uh, second brother, Carl, is when we, we really got close during that time period because we were kind of watching out for each other as we were walking to school and um, making sure we didn't get shaked down for our milk money or whatever it might be. And, you know, that was kind of a, a time period where I think we both kind of grew together to be kind of, uh, you know, have each other's backs. What kind of jobs did your mom have during that time? Oh, God. What jobs didn't she have? Uh, she was a waitress at a Chinese restaurant for a little bit, um, which was actually pretty cool because we could go down there after school and get like uh, wonton soup and like egg rolls and like uh, crab rangoons and like all, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. living high off the hog on that one when she was working <laughs> there. Um, then actually she went and worked at Jelly Belly Factory. So that was like another cool one because we'd go there and oh, like. Man. Yeah, candy whenever we wanted. Um, and, uh, you know, she just kind of, again, I, I oddly that we're having this conversation today because 
literally, I think probably about four days ago, we had a deep conversation, me and my mom did, um, mainly just about how we talked about, I, I respect what she did as a single mom and what she uh, just kept going is what I should say. She never gave up. She still fought when I mean, did she work at Jelly Belly and these kind of low end paying jobs? Yes, but she made sure that she had a job to pay for something, even though she was getting a little bit of the assistance on the side. She didn't just give up and say, someone else has to take care of these kids, you know, and I give her a lot of credit for at least trying and trying to do that kind of stuff. Did your mom know that you felt that way about her before you had that conversation? I don't think she did. No. Why not? Yeah, I mean, I think she thinks I was like disappointed in her for a long time. And I and I really wasn't. Um, you know, I was disappointed in certain situations we got put into, but I wasn't disappointed in her as like a parent. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, again, she did everything that she could and she never gave up uh, regardless of what she was doing with it. And that's the stuff that I was proud about her and um yeah, I don't think she knew about that conversation until literally we had it a couple days ago while we were talking on the phone. What precipitated that conversation? I'm, I'm curious. How did that come about? Well, like we talked before, you know, this is a month that uh, is, you know, very hard for myself and both my parents. And, you know, my brother's birthday uh, was on December 7th. So we actually were talking about that and we just kind of went down just a, a road of, um, you know, how she, she actually expressed how proud she was of me. She goes, I'm so proud of the man you turned out to be, um, with your career, the way, how I see you with my grandchildren, blah, blah, blah. And I just thought at that time I needed to express how I felt about her. Yeah. That's really interesting. And yeah. you alluded to it a bit just now, and I know it's a tough part of your story, but there was a tragic incident that took both your brothers from you. And we talk brotherhood so fondly and what that means, but can you go a little bit about what happened and how you managed through it? Yeah. Sorry about uh, jumping the gun there, but yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so I would say years go down the road. Right. Um, and I think about right around the time that I was uh, going into high school, uh, my mom remarried Um and I decided at that point that didn't really want to live with my mom and her stepdad anymore. I, I want to go live with my dad. And um, I decided to move up north and go live with him. And uh, Carl and Chris weren't very happy about it. And I think as soon as mom gave them the OK, they were moving up, too. And that's kind of what ended up happening. So we kind of made this big switch to where we were living with our mom, you know, ever since in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And then we moved all the way up to uh, Greenwood, Wisconsin. And where um, was your, where was your dad when you were living in the women's shelter just to jump in on that phase? Yeah. So my dad was having his own problems. Um, you know, he was uh, dating some women that got him into trouble. Um, and actually at, at one point he did a little small stint in jail and he was in jail while we were living with our mom. And that, that was a time period too, where I wasn't sure if we were ever going to see you know, my dad or not. Um, so I'd, I'd say, you know, whatever, four years went by, we were living with our dad fine. And the way how our dad took care of us was that, you know, he worked a third shift job. So 
basically he relied on me and Carl to kind of take care of ourselves and to take care of Christopher as much as we can. And, um, when I was a senior in high school, I decided to not be at home. I was at a friend's house and I was sleeping. We actually had a basketball game the next day and, um, it was actually one of probably, probably one of the first nights I probably stayed away from home. Um, and I got woken up in the middle of the night at my friend's house, uh, saying we needed to go to your house. And I kind of thought it was odd what's going on, you know, they're like, oh, there's, there's an emergency. We, we just got to get you to your house. So I didn't know this beforehand, but his mom is actually a first responder in town. So she had already been to my house. So she already knew what was going on, but they didn't clue me in and to what was going on. And uh, this was the friend's, just going friend's mom you were staying a, with. Yes. Yep. She was she was already there at my house and she told her son, which was my friend, to wake Keith up and he needs to come. OK. And again, in my mind, I don't know what's going on. My friend wouldn't tell me what was going on, even though like later on, he told me that he knew. Um. So we're driving to my house and it's, it's kind of a long distance. We kind of like lived in the sticks versus uh, where Greenwood, the city is. So it's a little bit of a drive. And the whole time I'm thinking like in the back of my mind, um, don't let it have something happen to Carl and Chris, you know, cause that was all in my mind is, you know, I'm staying away from home. Carl, Carl's, you know, a sophomore in high school. So he's, he can take care of himself. Christopher's a, a freshman or soon to be a freshman. Um, you know, don't let it have anything happen with Carl Chris. That's all I kept saying in the back of my mind. And there's things that get embedded into your head that you won't ever forget. And I remember going up this hill and it was like Christmas lights. So you're talking police lights, fire lights, ambulance lights. And as we're getting closer, I can kind of see, you know, all these different vehicles next to my house or that was my house. And, um, our house was totally burnt down to the ground and I got out of the car and ran to a fire guy. And I said, where's my brothers at? Where's Carl and Chris? And he guided me to the back of an ambulance. And, uh, my dad was there and our pastor was in there. And, uh, I just remember asking him, I said, where's, you know, where's Carl and Chris? Just like, hopefully like thinking that they're in like another ambulance. Cause there was like multiple there. And, uh, all my dad could do was shake his head. Mm. And I still didn't really know exactly, you know, at that time didn't, exactly know what that meant and uh as i was sitting in that ambulance and the pastor's kind of coming over to me and telling me hey sit down and things like that um i just went into kind of a state of shock and um honestly i can't even remember uh when we left the scene because it was in the middle of the night so i from from that point of being in the ambulance to Whenever we got back into um, into town, I don't remember that gap. 
I don't remember that drive. And it's a, probably about a 15 minute drive from where my house was to where Greenwood was. And, um, you know, those are things that I definitely won't ever forget is just, you know, seeing those lights and in the back of my mind, just constantly saying, don't let anything have happened to my brothers and getting there and getting that news was like, it was a dream. So what was that process like for you and your parents then after that tragic moment in your life? How, how, how yeah, did you so, I mean, start to recover from that? You, you never, you hear these things happen on the news, right? You turn on your local news and you hear these accidents happen, these tragic accidents. And, you know, you see things in movies and you always say to yourself, like, uh, you know, that's never going to happen to me until a situation like that does happen to you. And to be honest with you, you really don't know how to handle it. There's not like a guide or like a book that says, hey, this is exactly what you do when you lose two of the closest people to you um, and follow these steps and you'll be OK, because there, there, there really isn't. And, you know, there's a thing that's called a grieving process and everybody grieves differently. Some people are very angry, every, like everything is somebody else's fault and, you know, fuck the world, fuck God, you know, all these things. Some people mm-hmm. take grieving to get super depressed and they push everybody away. Some people t- turn towards, you know, drugs and alcohol. Um, and to be honest with you, I'm not going to sit here on a high horse and tell anybody that any of those are wrong because it's really how you feel. And if that's the way how you want to feel, um, you know, at the start of a grieving process, then you do what you want to do. Um, but I'm guess my story would be that don't let it totally exhume you for the rest of your life. You know, you still are here for a reason. You have a timeline, uh, at some point, you know, that timeline is going to end. And do you really want to use that full timeline of grieving the whole time and just like totally pissing your life away because you're upset about something? And that's the piece that I would tell people. I mean, grieve the way how you want to grieve. Just don't let it totally exhume your life. Um, I, I would tell you right now, I, I, I'm still grieving over my brothers. It's not that, you know, I sit in a dark room and cry every December 5th um, and don't come out of the room and things like that. But, you know, there's times where I will sit down and I'll think about them and send a little prayer out. And that's my grieving process, you know. Um, I will say that as a parent though, you know, I don't know how I would have reacted losing my two kids. So what my parents did and how they grieved, I can't judge them either because I'm not, I didn't lose children. You know, I lost, I lost two Mm -hmm. siblings, but to lose two children, I think is a, a different animal in its own. So especially two at one time, you know, I mean, it's something that, you know, some, something for sure that still eats away at my dad every day. Um, I still think that he thinks that, um, you know, he's the cause of this situation when it was a hundred percent freak accident. Um, and I think that eats at him every day. Um, and same thing well, with my mom. I mean, my mom, same thing. I think she's still grieving very hard over, uh, my two brothers as well. So, 
what were the circumstances behind what happened? Uh, we had a, a wood stove in our, and the, again, the, the whole place was a total loss. I mean, it was burnt down all the way to the, pretty much the ground. So from what the, that is that, you know, more than likely this thing sparked out, hit some wood and, um, you know, started the fire. Now the, the best, that I heard from the fire marshal is that, you know, both Carl and Chris were found in their beds. So smoke inhalation, they passed peacefully, um, which the probably, again, the best thing that we heard uh, out of that investigation. But um, yeah, it total, total loss. I mean, when we went there, by the time that we got there, the, it was totally burnt down to the ground. So I think you have a very mature look on the grieving process, but when you're in it, you were an 18 year old kid when this happened, were you as forgiving it yourself back when this first happened? Or what were those weeks and months to come after that? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, as a senior in high school, I, I, one thing I will say is that like being in such a small community, they definitely rallied behind us, like as a family. And that was like a great thing to experience is just kind of see the city, you know, help us out with anything that we needed at that point. I mean, we even had Carl and Chris's uh, memorial in the high school gymnasium. So, I mean, that was like, you know, such a blessing to have that community behind us and to help us out during that time period. But, you know, you're right. Like as an 18 year, honestly, I, I don't know how I got through that process. I mean, there is definitely some numbing points that I went through and, you know, and by numbing, I mean, I turned to alcohol for, you know, I went to high school parties and stuff like that and, you know, drank my fair share of uh, bush lights and stuff and, and tried to numb the pain that way. Um, but, you know, again, I, I would say that I had a very tight knit community behind me that helped me get through graduate high school and uh, kind of try to hopefully move on from a tragic event like that. Um, and I don't, and I think that if I didn't have those people in place, I would have gotten severely lost because during that time period, my dad was way lost. Um, you know, again, when I don't have an adult figure, my, you know, at home and for anything, that's where an 18 year old can definitely fall down a, a rabbit hole. And, uh, you know, again, if I didn't have those key people in my, I think I definitely could have easily slipped down that rabbit hole and we would be having a different conversation about where my life went. So when your brothers passed, you were five months ish away from graduating from high school. How did you even find the perseverance to be able to get through and even graduate? Yeah. I mean, I think that was, a conversation that I had with my brother Carl before he passed, you know, we both had this kind of deep conversation about where our parents were financially and just kind of how they were educated wise. Um, you know, one kind of jumped on my brother about was that Carl was kind of this, um, you know, kind of class clown wannabe. And, and he was a funny guy. Don't get me wrong, but he definitely treated high school, as more of a comedy show than, you know, an educational thing. And I had to kind of jump on him a little bit and say, look, you know, if you have any aspirations of going to college, you're going to need to, 
you know, turn around your grades and start focusing on this. And um, I said, otherwise, you're going to end up just like mom and dad. You're going to have a minimum wage job and you're going to live just like they did. And I know you don't want to do that. And, you know, we got his grades um, that semester uh, that he passed away. And he had turned his grades around to where he was an honor roll student. So he was on the right path. And I think that that conversation was always in the back of my head that I said that I'm not going to let down Carl as he's looking down at me and say, you know, because I can just hear him now, you fucker, you told me to get A's and graduate high school. And now you're going to go ahead and, you know, not even graduate. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that was definitely a conversation that just kind of replayed in my head and just said, you got to you got to graduate high school and kind of move on and um, again, break that poverty cycle that uh, Carl and Chris and I lived in. So I guess to move the story forward, you did graduate high school, went on to college. Now, yep, uh, adversity struck again while you were in college. Um, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about the uh, the loss that you that you saw in uh, in college as well? Yeah, man. I mean, I at, at some point in my life, I honestly thought that like I was just dodging the Grim Reaper because there was situations that would just come up where you know it was like you know are you fucking kidding me like things like this are happening again like it just you I just went through this with my brothers and then one of my really great best friends pretty much almost like a brother of mine he was technically living with us pretty much for half his life uh he actually moved up and I didn't talk to you guys about it right away but he actually moved up with us from Kenosha so he he moved up and lived with my dad uh, his name is Sean, Sean, Sean Losher. Um, there's a story about this is that, you know, back in the nineties or, or late, late nineties, two thousands, you know, Tommy Hilfiger was like the, oh, yeah. the clothing brand. Right. Do you remember like the old, like <clears throat> Tommy Hilfiger, like bibs and stuff and things Dude, like I that? Dude, I used to buy that shit. Like it was going out of style because it was the same initials as me, dog. <laughs> So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, oh man. So anyways, this, this, uh, this, this situation with, you know, pretty much just living a fad, you had to have wear these kind of clothes to be cool. Oh, yeah. Right. There yeah. is a, and you might even know of this location. There is a place that's called seven mile fair. Do you know of that? Yes, I do. I do know. Oh seven my mile God. Fair. Okay. Oh my goodness. So yes. they, <laughs> they will sell the most bootleg clothes <laughs> you can find right so me and sean would actually go down a seven mile fair and we could buy what's called tommy hill finger clothing line <laughs> <laughs> so oh, yeah. and it still had like you know oh, it still man. had like the logo yeah but it said finger instead of you know the other and it was you know <laughs> nobody could catch that though unless they like stopped and like yeah. totally read our shirt look close but yeah. <laughs> um oh man <laughs> so trip down memory lane with uh that, that so anyways sean and i were, were he's we're about the same age he's a couple years older than me but we grew up in this lifestyle of just like kind of poverty and we kind of you know attached each other i think together just because of how similar we were living and um Sean almost went down the same slippery slope that my dad did when my brothers passed away because 
those my brothers were pretty much almost like his brothers during that sure. time period because he's he knew Chris since he was three years old and you know knew Carl when he was super young and um, so it killed him too. I mean, he definitely went down on on certain nights. I saw him go way down farther than um, even my dad did. So, um, but yeah. So Sean, after all this happened, um, Sean kind of was like, "I'm never fucking leaving you." Like I think he felt like again a, another guilt situation that he moved out to Marshfield to have mm-hmm. his own apartment and work. So when this happened, um, he's like, "Where are you going to go to college at?" Blah blah blah. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm going to go up to Eau Claire. I've got some friends that are going up to Eau Claire. Um, I'll follow along and it'll be, it'll, it'll be fun up there. Right. And Sean's like, well, I'm fucking coming too. And he came up there and uh, got himself an apartment and he was working. And, um, you know, obviously me going to school and I'm working part time. So things were like kind of like on a normal pace. And um, I had a girlfriend at the time and, one night we were all, you know, doing college stuff, just drinking and stuff. And, uh, one of, uh, Sean's friends, I didn't really know him too well. Um, but he came around and he had a new car and, um, you know, basically asked to go for a car ride. I don't know the full stories ins and out of this. Cause I wasn't like present when they were having this conversation, but, uh, essentially was like, Hey, we're going to go, take this fast car on these back roads and have some fun and, you know, come back home. And, you know, one thing led to another, unfortunately they didn't come back home and they got into a car accident and I get a call saying Sean was in a car accident and he's on life support headed to Mayo in Minnesota. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, you know, again, this is something that's happening, you know? So, um, uh, I, I, I wait, you know, I, I go to Mayo pretty much first thing, drive up there and Sean is hooked up to all these machines. And my dad actually even came up there. My mom actually came up to Mayo as well. Um, at first the doctor said, you know, look, he might survive, but we're not sure what he's going to be like. Um, you know, he's got to have this surgery on his back. He's got to do this and that. And you know, basically they tried to start doing things to see if they were going to keep them alive. Well, during this time period, obviously my parents don't have custody over Sean um, and they're Mm -hmm. not parents. His mom ended up flying in from Arizona, I think is where she was living at at the time. And um, essentially just basically said, look, if Sean's on life support, you can go ahead and take it off. Oh and she had con- she had control over it. So as much as my dad and I said, I don't think that's the smartest thing. Let's like keep him on here for a while and see what happens. You know, um, wasn't our call. And uh, I didn't see it happen. You could stay in the room, I guess, with Sean while he passed away. I didn't do it. One of my other close friends uh, did. And uh, I think that is something that haunted him for his lifetime. Because I guess he didn't go right away. I, they they said that, uh, you know, shit, he's supposed to, you know, pass in less than 30 seconds or something like that. I think it was an hour that he was breathing and moving his mouth and, like, all these things. And, like, you know, in the back of my fucking mind, I'm like, you know, if he's doing these things, why can you, like, 
plug him back in or something. That, in my mind, that's like him <laughs> trying to fight and say he's alive, you know. So that shit happened. And, um, yeah, it was back down the rabbit hole again for a little bit. Wasn't sure how I was going to handle that situation. So you hit on something that I'm really curious about, which is um, I'm sure you had a lot of people around you that wanted to say and do the right things to support you during this really difficult time and your parents as well. What were some people, things that people did that you would say were really helpful in a time like this, maybe to help people understand how to help others get through stuff like this? Yeah. I mean, I think it was just more of just like the constant, just like, being there right like Mm -hmm. you don't you know i think a lot of people like bring like cards and things like that like none of that stuff really mattered to me at all it was more just like sitting in a room watching a tv show together because at this point i actually felt like dead ass alone because my parents weren't there after sean either they had their own lives going on yeah i had my own life going on you know my dad was still in uh, greenwood still at the time my mom is living with her husband and um you know, when I when I moved up to Eau Claire with Sean, I was like, oh, this is like pretty awesome. I got like my best friend and my brother here with me. Like and we hung out every single day, pretty much any time that we could. So like, yeah, during that time period, you know, all I was looking for is just for people to just be around. And I think it was more of a more of a feeling of just I didn't want to feel alone because if I felt alone, I might slip down, you know, again, a rabbit hole of being in a very negative spot. And um, I'm thankful for those people who, who did that. Cause I did have a lot of friends that just came over to our college house and just stayed there and chatted and whether play card games or if we were, um, you know, just watching TV or whatever. Um, I will say though, too, I did focus a lot on like going to like the gym. And I mm-hmm. think there was days where I didn't leave the basketball court for like eight hours. Cause I just didn't want to go back to like, I don't know, a reality of um, what I was going through. So I tried to keep my mind on something that um, kept me away from that kind of stuff. So outside of some of the distractions you were able to keep for yourself, like basketball, to keep your mind off it, what was your internal talk like during this time? How did you keep yourself positive to some degree to make it to where you are now? You know, like I said, I – Every every day, what replays in the back of my mind is my brothers and the conversations we had about being successful and making something of ourselves. So even after and, and Sean and I had conversations like this, too, because, again, Sean comes from the same you know, poverty cycle that I came from. And, you know, he was actually trying to get into college at the same time. But, um, you know, again, my, my whole mindset of that was just I, I can't let myself get to a point where I become a bum on the streets or an alcoholic and not care about anything. Because if I do, I've got two very disappointed people that are looking down at me. And I potentially have two disappointed parents looking at me in the face. And I didn't want that. So there was a lot of like pressure on my shoulders. And I would say it was good pressure because I, I needed, I needed that to, to make sure that I didn't go down a way that was the easy route and the easy route was to just drink or do drugs and be depressed and be sad and blame the world. And, you know, fuck God, I shouldn't be in this situation, blah, blah, blah. That's the easy route. Right. Um, and I'm glad that I had a push to go the hard route, which was 
overcome some grief and use it as a driver to where I wanted to be in life. I think that's a good opportunity for us to maybe uh, flash forward then to your life. Well, now you've met a wonderful woman in Emily, who's your wife, and you've got two great kids in Trent and Avery. And what does it mean now to be a dad, given all of your experiences in, in overcoming adversity and grieving the loss of two brothers and a third person who was, for all intents and purposes, a third brother? You know, what has that meant in terms of your ability to be a great husband and a great father? And, and just talk a little bit about that dynamic and how that's changed your perspective on life. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, I had a question the other day and it was actually at, a, at the gym. They have like a question of the day and they asked, uh, what uh, year of your age uh, was the best time of your life? And most people go like, you know, 21, you know, 18, 16, motherfucker, 34 is the best year <laughs> of my life. And I don't care what people say about yeah, it. John, I fuck have, off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You don't know shit until you're 34. Buddy. <laughs> and, you know, again, I'm married to the woman I love. Um, I have a, a great son that looks up to me and anything I could do anything and he would think it's right. Um, I have a daughter that is the apple of my eye. I mean, this little girl, anytime she smiles, just melts my heart. Um, I have a very great career. I was fortunate enough to, uh, you know, obviously worked hard to get, but also, um, you know, had some help from a friend, uh, get me into a place where I wanted to work. Um, and that career has been moving up and up. Um, and I've just got some great, great close friends. I mean, honestly, I'm in the happiest stage of my life that I've, yeah, for sure. Right now is the happiest stage of my life. I love to hear that. And 35 is only going to be better, but that's right. Even, you saw life taken at times and you never thought that it would be. How has that affected you in living in the moment and being in the present, not knowing truly how many days around this earth we're going to get? Life is precious, man. I mean, and I've learned that the hard way that life is a very precious thing that we're all lucky enough to have. Right. Um, and that's why I'm not a no guy. And sometimes my wife hates that. Sometimes I'm such a yes guy, like, you know, Hey Keith, we're going to Maui. Are you in? hell yeah, I'm in. Um, and then I'll work it out with the wife later if I can go or not. Right. But, um, luckily I've married a woman who lets me do those things and, it, and it's great. But, um, you know, again, if you've ever experienced like a close member passing away, um, I think everyone can be on the same page that, you know, you, you got to cherish life and it shouldn't take a death though, for you to figure that out. It really shouldn't. You should just be grateful that every day you're waking up and you've got something to do. Um, and I don't care how old you are. If, even if that is waking up to go for a walk outside to your front porch, you know, you're still up and breathing air and alive. And I think that that's pretty much my, my credo, I guess, if you want to call it that is that, you know, life is precious to, to do what makes you happy and um, just realize that it's short and, um, don't let certain things that happen in your life get you to a point where you feel like you don't care about your life anymore. So I think too often we need those intense moments to really shake us out of it and be like, wow, I'm grateful after a death that 
after tough times, it's really easy to see the good times. People who might have not gone through many hardships in their life or they've had a relatively cushy, like coast through kind of life. How would you say those type of people can instill some of that gratitude and just appreciation for the preciousness of every day without going through something severe and traumatic like you have? Things that you may think are important now, like I'll use the the holidays, right? So like this is, you know, the holidays, Christmas time. If people are getting upset about, you know, hey, I can't get the PS5 or whatever fad toy it is now, you know, they should be treating the holidays of, you know, that valued time with family, you know, grandma's at your, your, your Christmas table, you know, this year, next year, she may not be, you know, things like that. You should be cherishing, not what's underneath the tree. Um, you know, I, I've got things too that go on in my house as well that, you know, Hey, we got to make sure we have the, the most perfect dinner spread, or we got to make sure we have the best selection of wine and stuff like that for who gives a shit. As long as we're all together together in the house and that's what makes us happy who gives a shit what we're eating or what we're drinking or what gifts are underneath the fucking tree because that the only thing that's important are the people that are inside your house and the people that you text every day and you know that that's the way how in my opinion people again not going to push anything on anybody but that's kind of the way how i that those little things don't matter to me yeah, I, I think it actually does too relate. John, I think it's a really good question. I think it talks, we talk a little bit about it in episode four about this importance of empathy. And I think being able to put yourself in other people's shoes and honestly hearing your story, Keith, just reminds me how precious life is. And, you know, you and I are both dads of young kids. And I think fatherhood absolutely changes your perspective on life. Hearing your story changes my perspective on uh, what's important and what's not, and just reaffirms, I think, some of the things that we all should be focused on, which is the relationships you have with people, um, how others make you feel, and how you make others feel, and your impact on other people, and 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 the the legacy that you leave behind. So, I guess it, it, with those sentiments in mind, I mean, what what do you want to get out of the rest of your life? I mean, I know it's a broad existential question but you know you're 34 and you've gone through a lot of shit so i mean what what do you want to yeah accomplish? i mean to be honest with you i i don't know um my my whole thing with life is to just keep you know progressing uh, uh with my family and i think you know i do have goals that i set every year and if i make those goals great if i don't i rewrite it and i try to hit it again the following year um, but I think the biggest thing that, you know, again, that I'm really trying to do is just, you know, again, make my parents as proud as they can be about where we've been as a family and where I'm headed and where I am now. Um, and that's kind of just, that's the goal that I live by. Don't want to ever make them disappointed in anything that I do, um, going forward. And I've got two, three guys upstairs looking down at me too, going, Hey, um, we're, we're, we're rooting for you is what they're saying. So hopefully they're, they're proud of where I'm at. And, um, you know, again, that's, that's all I keep doing is just chugging along, take the hits when they come and just keep moving forward. Uh, some common threads for sure. Uh, as you're talking too. I mean, we've had five episodes. This will be our fifth one. And in every single episode, the guest has talked about their relationship with their parents. 
And um, this is just another example of that even as tumultuous as your upbringing was, uh, you still are driven by wanting to make your parents proud. And um, I think that is a very strong force in a lot of people's lives, myself included. And so I think a lot of people can relate, even with as much adversity as you face, that still is something that continues to drive you every day. And parents are not perfect and mine certainly aren't, but I also know as a parent how difficult it is to be a dad and how imperfect mm -hmm. and messy it is. But uh, you do the best damn job you can with the circumstances you have, and uh, you hope to raise kids uh, like your parents raised. So um, hats off to you for the way you've handled this and the way you've represented your story. I think it's, uh, it's fantastic. And as, as hard as it was to hear some of the things you've gone through, uh, I can tell you that I'm personally inspired. So I appreciate you being a part of this. Uh, and I think our listeners will too. I as well. I mean, I first met you when you were a single crazy guy and we were traveling the world together. So to see you go into fatherhood now and then even peel back and understand more of the layers to your story and some of the values that were instilled in perspective from your upbringing and from times that you've gone through, it is inspiring to see the person that you've become and like you said, you're 34 now and it's the best year of your life. 35 is going to be even better and you're going to keep going. So to see the mindset and family and creation that you have and the momentum you're getting in life, it's, it's exciting and it's inspiring. And I oh, would not I hesitate that. if you could, if you can find some of that Tommy Hilfinger stuff, I'd love to see it, man. <laughs> <laughs> just because of that, I want to take a field trip to the seven mile fair now. Yes. I, I want to see what kind of stuff they got there. That's knockoff. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That brought me way back on there. Uh, I think we dude, even had some, uh, some hair Jordans, you know, H A I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, too good. Yeah, well, good Keith, stuff. Good stuff. Well, I so appreciate everything, uh, guys, for sure. I mean, it, there's a lot of things I said on this podcast that I think a lot of, even some of my close friends still don't, didn't know about me. So it was definitely a good to, uh, get some of that stuff off my chest though, and talk to you guys and, um, hopefully, you know, again, my goal is to somebody hear this that's maybe going through some grieving uh, themselves uh, to hear that it's not, uh, you know, the end of the world, that there's there there's life still left and uh, just to battle through it. Mm. It's a lesson everyone can take away. Yeah, and you are sad. like a brother to me, man. You are seriously like you've had other brothers outside of blood in your life. You're a brother to me. So thank you for sharing your story, for being vulnerable with us, taking your time and. I'm so damn excited to cheer on the Packers with you at Christmas. Let's <laughs> to see you soon. Thanks, you Keith. Appreciate it, brother. Yeah, see you guys. See ya. Wow. What an inspirational story from Keith. Man, that guy has gone through some things. So, see him come out the other side. So, we're transitioning now. So, listeners, you should have this figured out by now. But if you haven't, we are going into the What's It All About segment. So, Todd and I spend a little bit of time reflecting on the podcast and talk about a takeaway that we had to kind of put a wrap on it. So coming at you, Todd, what's it all about? Yeah, I, I would say this has been the most difficult story to hear of the five that we've heard so far. Every one of our guests has faced some level of adversity in their lives, but I think this one's been the toughest. And even sometimes during the uh, interview, it was hard to know what questions to ask next. And, uh, you know, it was uh, just incredibly impactful to hear Keith walk us through some of the adversities felt in his life and how he's overcome that. 
And hopefully listeners don't just focus on the tough stuff. I mean, certainly there's a lot of very challenging things that have happened to Keith and his family, but hope, hopefully they take some, some wisdom and some inspiration from the things that he said on how he has been able to persevere. And it reminds me of uh, a tenant that I've had um, and, and tried to remind myself, um, and I, I borrowed it from a, a former mentor and boss of mine, and it was a, a simple question. It was, and it's something I think about often, are you accountable or are you a victim? And I think that that question is one that Keith, I'm sure, wrestles with on a regular basis because things happen to you in life and some things you absolutely can't control. And so there's a propensity in people to say, you know, woe is me. Um, this shouldn't have happened to me. This is going to be something that, um, you know, I continue to focus and dwell on for the rest of my life. And I get it these things are very hard to overcome and I'm not minimizing at all the anxiety, the stress, the depression, other things that, that can come from these situations. And if you're suffering from those things, please, if you haven't get help, talk to somebody, um, there are ways to overcome that. But I think what I heard from Keith is that he is turning those situations of extreme adversity into ways to hold himself accountable, to make something of himself to find solutions, to own his reality, to acknowledge what's happened, to share his story with others in ways that makes himself better and also helps others. And I think that is, those are amazing attributes in someone. And, and I think Keith just reminded me of the importance of having that level of accountability and really owning your situation and your circumstances and using them to be a better person. Accountable versus victim. That is something I would challenge everyone to think through as they listen to this episode, because so many times we can feel that pity party for ourselves, get down on things. And we really do have the ability to control how we react to these situations and hearing someone like Keith go through some of the worst of it and come out with a positive mindset. I mean, think about things you complain about or get frustrated and down on yourself on a daily basis. When you're accountable and you hold yourself to a set standard, it's actually pretty freeing too. So I challenge everyone to be accountable. It absolutely is. It's empowering. It's empowering. It's not easy to do. Believe me, I, I have some, some days where I feel like I am the victim in oh, certain yeah. situations. Oh, yeah. I'm sure we all feel that way, but it was amazing to hear Keith and how he has used so many of these things to drive a certain level of um, accountability and empowerment in his life and to make himself better. And it's, again, great, great tale for others to, to listen to as well. And this will be us wrapping it up for this year, at least, but much more to come. Isn't that right? Yeah, I'm sorry to say this is the last episode of Pursuing the Process for 2021. It has been a hell of a ride with you, Mr. Barnes. It's been so fun getting this out into the world. Um, one of my friends reminded me just what a powerful thing it is for you to put something out in the world that's going to last and that this is going to be something we can reflect on for a long, long time. And I just have to say, tip of my cap to everybody out there who's listened so far. I found out my mom actually listened to episode one today. Yeah, mama. a huge deal. Thanks, mom. Love you. <laughs> yeah, so, but if, if you've listened already and you like what you hear, refer us to somebody else. We'd love to continue to broaden the net here and to, to get more people listening to these incredible stories. Yeah. I should probably give a shout out to your mom too, since that is, I mean, my grandma. Of course, so. <laughs> <laughs> shout, shout, shout out grandma hall. <laughs> exactly. But no, it love has it. been so, so much fun. We're excited to continue this. We want to keep building on it. And the way we get better is through feedback from yourselves. So ideas that you have, reach out to us through social media networks, through 
if you have our personal lines, however you want to give us feedback, we will receive it in the best way we possibly can. We'll try to be accountable to it. <laughs> but no, thank you so much to everyone a part of this. Todd, thank you to you, but we are excited to keep moving forward with it. Let's do it, man. 22 is going to be an awesome year, and um, this will be a huge part of it. Hell yeah. And we are out. <laughs>